0: it has been surreal. It has been a weird day in Wellington. And, uh, I mean, it is a kind of enclave down there. And I have to, for most of these 23 days, it hasn't impacted much on my life and work. But I've got a daughter at high school near there that's been closed for some time because of it. Um, But, yes, today when it flared up like that, I mean, that was impossible to ignore for everyone. And hearing the helicopters in the morning and stuff, then, you you know, it's all kicking off. But I have to say... The the media offered great coverage of this. I know there's this argument we've talked about it on our program on Media Watch about the oxygen of publicity and you know too much uh, coverage to what essentially is a small minority with fringe views and so on but um, when something really flares up like that people want to know what's happening and where and yeah really great coverage uh, particularly for example the stuff blog and the stuff they have in Wellington uh, videographers for example whose names you often don't know or see you know really stepping up they might not be the best paid and sometimes fairly junior members of the newsroom you never know and uh, they're doing absolutely blinding coverage that's being seen uh, all around the country and all around the world so really good and just in my limited exposure of actually being near the protest site on visits I've made. I mean, it's quite draining just to be near um, at times. So having to be there for extended periods, like, for example, TVNZ's Kristen Hall from day one, you know, and today doing hours and hours of, of broadcast, you know, on camera, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's really quite a body of work.
1: And you have so much hostility directed at you at the same time. So do you think this will change how media cover protests?
0: I think it will. I mean, in a sense, what happened today, the flare-up, doesn't really change it. Like, I think I was thinking about this, and I didn't actually say it uh, two weeks ago when I spoke to you. It's not so much what's going on, the kind of circus, the event at Parliament and the blockade. Uh, it's, it was the support structures around it, what, what happened to motivate people to get on that convoy or to join it once it came to Wellington. Those are the things that require investigation and will be, I think, by the media. But th- when it comes to reporters' safety... And the stresses they're exposed to. Interestingly, it came up as everything was raging outside on the lawn. Um, Parliament has select committees running and one of them was doing TVNZ's annual review. Uh, Brand new Chief Executive Simon Power, just his second day in the job, uh, attended and he said uh, that this was one of the first things he asked about when he took over, when MP Maureen Pugh uh, from National asked a question about whether they would be looking after their reporters in a different way. Um, and so, I mean, I could play all these clips of all the turmoil and chaos and rioting and yelling and so on from the day, but instead I'll play you a dusty clip from the um, the Zoom call uh, that called together this committee in Parliament. So this is uh, Brett McAnulty, who is TVNZ's General Counsel. A couple of weeks ago, you will have seen that, um, that we had a live cross that was... Uh... That, that was moved um, to uh, to inside the, the beehive rather than out on the balcony because it was creating um, you know quite quite a scene for with with protesters down, uh, d- downstairs. Um, so we are assessing these things all the time and making sure that our people and particularly those uh, of our of our One News team who work alone uh, in in regional areas too that they are that they are well supported and they have access to security. Uh, as 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 required. Yeah, and it was actually Kristen Hall that he was talking about there who had to, you know, move her live position that happened near the start of the protest because she was really being targeted by protesters. And interestingly, the Brent there talked specifically about those solo regional reporters they might have. So good that they're aware of that because, you know, as we know a lot of people in the protest came from um, regional areas, towns uh, and so on around the country and uh, all very well when you've got a big support network in a place like Wellington. And a, uh, but if you're on your own and people do carry their anger about mainstream media companies, as we have seen at the Taranaki Daily News, for example, where their offices were occupied for a short time, good to know that they're, they're thinking about that.
1: Last weekend on Media Watch, Colin, you spoke to documentary maker Tony Saturius, who said that the media should try harder to understand the protesters at Parliament. But he said that uh, media must not call them anti-mandate, but COVID deniers. Did you get any feedback on that?
0: Yeah, we did. I mean, he, he was saying, look, just say say what it is. They don't believe COVID's a thing at all, or if it is, it isn't serious and we shouldn't have big public health measures to deal with it, and media should be brave and, and say that. Um, on that, we, yeah, we did have some to and fro um, uh, to the programme, but one thoughtful response I got, and I won't say... Mention the guy's name because, you know, pylons and all of that thing that can happen in this febrile atmosphere. But he described himself as a non-loony protest supporter and a vaccinated libertarian. Um, and he felt that people like uh, Media Watch and others who've talked about this thought that we amplified the extreme views and people. He said, you're watching the, what he called the telegram racists and putting them higher than uh, the ideas of the more moderate people among the protesters. Maybe that's easier because it's uh, simpler to read what they're posting online that anyone can read rather than talk to the actual people. That was his point. He's saying, look, I can't help it if I've got a sincere position on this, he said. And apparently so do some anti-vaccine nutters, in his words, and even some racists, his words. Um, and that's fair enough. But I think, you know, in the light of what's happened, you know, now we see it. And we see what Tony Satorius was talking about on Media Watch last weekend. Look, find out who the people are, what they believe – and you know, but the fact that even if there are moderates there, and as we know, they they tolerated things that were said, they tolerated the kind of people who appear to be the core of it, who've caused a lot of the violence and extended it today, and that atmosphere of radicalisation that's clearly in, uh, infected a lot of people. Um, that is one reason that this protest has gone on as long as it has. So I, I don't think. I don't think it's valid anymore to say, to run that line of you know, not all protesters and there are moderates there. Of course there are, but something about that protest meant that the radical elements were definitely amplified within it.
1: Any other opinions in the mailbag?
0: <laughs> yeah, one from Sean Plunkett, uh, founder of the new media platform, uh, The Platform. And he wasn't impressed. Uh, he reckoned uh, MediaWatch's coverage was, um, sounded like a conversation at a Kelburn Academics fondue party and i 've never actually <laughs> been to one of those, so does anyone not, eat
1: fondue these days i
0: don 't think, I think it's, what was it 1970s was be the cut off point for that i don 't know, but I guess yeah, his point is he thinks it 's all a bit rarefied and esoteric, I suppose, but I think he was disappointed that there was no mention of his out outlet the platform and coverage that they 'd done. He went down and did talk to uh, protesters and formed a view that some of them moderate and maybe they 'd been mischaracterized, but they did do a survey of um, Of people they'd commissioned Courier Research, the polling company, to talk to some of the protesters there and to try and draw a bit of a profile about their political leanings and so on. And that was picked up by the media. So that's something other than publishing. Opinion pieces on their website, which is mostly what they've done up to that point, that uh, is newsworthy and did sort of move the debate on a bit. Uh, And interestingly, he published all the results, the raw data from the survey, before publishing the interpretations of it, which is the reverse of what they do with like those TV news political polls that they commission where the interpretation is always right up front before uh, you get to the data. Indeed, indeed, some of it you never find out from the, the polling company. So yeah, that's fair enough. So if he did feel he was being excluded, uh, and we have indeed, have we not? Karen talked about the pro, uh, the platform forming and, and things coming. So he hasn't been ignored. And further news this week, Sean has announced they're actually building a studio in central Otago where a couple of their presenters are going to be when they launch their um, streaming audio platform, which uh, we don't know when that's happening yet.
1: On Media Watch as well, uh, Tony, he praised reporters who got amongst the protesters at Parliament and tried to explain what makes them tick. And some more of that since hasn't gone down so well.
0: (laughs) No. Uh, So Newsroom did a 15-minute documentary published on the site, which was mainly, though not entirely, about one kind of anti-vax group, Voices for Freedom. And this was by the veteran TV current affairs show reporter um, Melanie Reid, who's been with Newsroom from uh, the start as their their head of investigations and video. This was funded by the Public Interest Journalism Fund, which is one reason why uh, it's got people's backs up. They said, we decided to give one group who uh, are... vaccine and mandate focus their say and voices for freedom has since said it's been delighted with its first interaction with the msm but newsroom has faced heavy criticism in recent days they haven't publicly responded to it yet for pretty much giving this group which runs a lot of misinformation
1: that wasn't the only effort to try to portray protesters up close there was one in the herald last weekend
0: Yeah, and I think this is one you'd have to file in the category of um, dated badly. Uh, This is the cover story, actually, in the Canvas magazine uh, in the Weekend Herald, uh, and the editor, Sarah Daniels, set the article up as, Who are these people? Uh, Journalist Amanda Saxton slung her hammock, camped out, and talked to the protesters. Insight is timeless, she says, and this is a fascinating insight into life on the ground at the protest. Was it fascinating? Well, it was interesting, Uh, it was vivid, but it was really flawed because, um, I mean, it read more like... The account of a, a first-person account of someone who was a participant in the protest, like a, um, you know, an unvaxxed nurse who chucked in her job or something and, and gone to join the the protest. So it, it wasn't really analytical. She described a lot of things. She mentioned the misinformation and the crazy views some people had, and some of the really unsavory, the anti-Semitic stuff, and uh, and all of that. But kind of just skated over it. And she wrote about, you know, I really want this is a quote. I really wanted to sleep in a parliamentary pohutukawa, So being there overnight made me feel like I was part of something big, an imposter, but present. I reveled in my view of the beehive uh, behind a canvas shanty town. You know, so. Would pretty, be novelist? Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, pretty rose tinted, but imagine you pick that up today, you know, been I mean, sitting in your coffee table, you looked at it now. There's a photo of her on the front with her hammock, you know, all nice and clean. And, you know, and of course, now that's a, a you know, a. a, a smoking wasteland. Um, So, you know, great that you had a camping, great time out. But the problem with it really was that, you know, it was supposed to be this sort of embedded insight and see what we can do. She talked about, now I understand vaccine hesitancy better, but you don't need to go to Parliament to understand why some of these people feel that they have reasonable doubt about the vaccine because they've read cherry-picked research and listened to their friends and gone on Facebook and so on. And, you know, she tagged it as um, Freedom Farm. Melanie Reid and her thing called it uh, Freedom Village. But, you know, that Parliament thing, as we saw today, it wasn't a farm. It's not, it's not a sustainable thing. It was a kind of like a reservation. Um, there was all that stuff they built around it. It, it was nothing without all the cars supporting it um, and stuff being trucked in. Uh, you know, so to paint this picture of it as some sort of great organic community that they built, um, yeah, I think if you read that article today, after the scenes uh, that we've seen in the last, um, you know, eighteen hours or so, it, it seems to me extremely naive. And you know, like I say, she didn't shy away from people going on about the great reset and other racist conspiracies, but didn't seem terribly bothered by it. And, you know, it's fine to be not judgmental where she was determined to be, but you've got to recognize that this was an environment being created where, you know, people were horribly misinformed and pretty much radicalized, and the, the article really didn't do that. Or, or look at how how is this thing going to end? These people are determined to be here. She had, didn't think ahead to what was about to happen just, you know, three, four days later.
1: Fair to say you weren't impressed.
0: No, and other, also not impressed because I looked up other articles she'd done, newspapers all over Canada uh, have published other accounts of her first-person things about the um, the occupation. And also in the UK's Daily Telegraph, which really has it in for New Zealand's COVID response and, and doesn't like Jacinda Ardern. So, you know, uh, she was writing Amanda Saxon, distrust of Ardern and, her dis- and disappointment in her government is palpable in Wellington. Um, well, sure, but, you know, the feeling around the rest of the city is not sympathetic to the occupation. Um, she was talking about. She really overstated the public um, support for anti-mandate sentiment, and you know, um, didn't make mention. In fact, in her in those other articles printed in Canada and the UK, of you know the Trumpism, the intimidation on the show, you know, the presence of things like Countess, but none of that was mentioned, let alone you know the weariness and irritation of most Wellingtonians who were not spending time at Camp Freedom.
1: Any accounts, Colin, of What's going on in Wellington that you actually gave the thumbs up to?
0: Yeah, a lot better. Um, Stuff's Florence Kerr, who I think is based at the Waikato Times, she did a great story quoting from police who were saying, um, in fact, one cop said, look, a majority of these people are disaffected. A lot of them need mental health support. These are ones who've been left there after three weeks. A lot of people joining the protest because they want to be part of something. Um, That was a really uh, revealing piece and one I hadn't... um, kind of come across the like of before but also a brilliant first person one um stuff had this thing called stuff nation trying to get readers reports they launched it a few years back wasn't terribly successful because most weren't compelling but this one was brilliant it was called a view of um, parliament's occupation from a wellington hospital bed and it was someone unfortunate enough to have to share a ward uh, with a patient from the occupation uh with um uh, an entourage of, of belligerent and inconsiderate friends. And, they, you know, they wouldn't wear masks, wouldn't behave, wouldn't do what the nurses asked them to. And I think that's a scene that could be playing out in hospital wards around the country, you know, fairly shortly, if not already. So, yeah, really good piece, that one.
1: Name withheld, though you can't name check that person.
0: No, and I think that's wise because, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's with correspondence writing to us, it just doesn't pay to put your name on things because, you know, we've seen what happens—the um, pylons. Um, the bitterness that some people have when anything to do with this protest
1: Now we're going now to uh, Ukraine and I see that the international Russian news channel RT, they've been taken off air here why is that?
0: Yeah, interesting one so it was on uh, Sky, one of a range of um, international news channels on Sky, but it's Russian government funded RT and uh, Sky said they've had complaints once the war kicked off about the coverage because it's a a pretty much a Russian government perspective on a lot of things and they said they'd had on Going dialogue with the Broadcasting Standards Authority, uh, so they said we've taken the step to suspend it. And uh, Stuff reported the BSA had had written to broadcasters on Friday to remind them of its guidelines for covering crises, uh, including uh, the Omicron outbreak and, and the war in Ukraine.
1: What do the guidelines say?
0: Well, they're not heavy-handed warnings or anything like that. It wasn't actually. The BSA telling the broadcasters don't run that dodgy Russian channel wasn't like that. Mostly saying, look, the war's on. Don't broadcast traumatic violence stuff gratuitously, you know, where people could be ambushed by horrible footage, mostly about that. But in other countries, um, Foxtel, which is basically Australia's sky, has uh, blocked Russia today. The UK might be about to do it. Um, and look... It is still online. YouTube doesn't care. They've, they've blocked ads, so RT can't make money from ads. But they're still running it. And if we've got time, um, I, I just dropped into the coverage last night to see, am I going to see some outrageous propaganda? Can we play what, what I heard? We've got time? Yeah. Absolutely. OK. So here's, here's, this was a report about how, just how well some captured Ukrainian soldiers were being treated. Here in Lugansk, they eat the same food as local military. They sleep on the same beds and linen in similar dorms. And apparently, that is the treatment they didn't really expect. We had expected worse treatment. It is a rare situation that we, the fighting sides, had a dialogue. Now those up there should sit and talk too. Yeah, it's a pretty obvious propaganda that, and interestingly it's in that Lugansk region which is, I think, the breakaway part of uh, Ukraine, um, which you know, Russia, I think, sees as, as its territory. A lot of Russian speakers there. So uh, I think a lot of politicians um, now are trying to deflect uh, Russian aggression and talking about well, what about Donbass? What about Luhansk? These areas um, that they feel are, are, are Russian and that Ukraine oppresses. So, yeah, uh, RT, definitely a lot of propaganda on that.
1: The Herald and stuff, but they both asked Sky whether um, Sky was paid to broadcast RT.
0: Yeah, interesting, isn't it? And um, Sky just said the commercial details of our contracts are confidential. That was pretty much all they would say. So were they paid? Well, I don't know. Um, That's the conclusion I jumped to at first. You know, if they're not going to say, well, they probably are. But probably not necessarily so because there's a lot of the international channels uh, about out there like Al Jazeera and even Germany's Deutsche Welle and so on. Some of them are kind of soft power initiatives funded by governments and they just make them available for free. So it's possible that Sky charges some international broadcasters to um, carry them. So these the broadcasters, having paid for the output, uh, the governments you know can tick a box that says their footprint extends out to New Zealand. So it's possible that Sky does get a bit of money from some and not others, and they probably don't want some to know that they could probably get away with not paying a charge uh, if they offered up their content. So maybe that's the reason why. So not necessarily that uh, the, the Russian government is actually paying them to put it on their slate.
1: Even so, though, do you think they're worth watching um, during a crisis, even if they do represent a national point of view?
0: Yeah, I think that is interesting because there are so many different types of channels. There's BBC World Television, an offshoot of BBC News gathering. It's funded by the UK, obviously, but it doesn't purport to represent the national viewpoint. CGTN of China, China's kind of CNN, definitely does, because all Chinese media is is um, state-controlled on the national scale. Anyway, Al Jazeera, backed by... The government in in Doha. So uh, regarded with suspicion by other countries, but it employs serious journalists, covers uh, news that other Western channels simply don't get anywhere near in Africa and the Middle East. So, um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot to be said for it. Um, In fact, if we've got time, just one quick, I had a chat with a guy called Simon Spanswick about this, who leads the Association of International Broadcasters. And I said, look, with all these channels funded in different ways, Are you legitimising international propaganda by having these in your association? call it soft power, call it public diplomacy, if you like. Um, That'll vary depending on your point of view and also where that programming is coming from. But clearly, uh, RT from Russia, we've just seen TRT World launch uh, an English language service out of Turkey that's as well-funded as Turkish Airlines that now has more destinations, apparently, than any other airline. They've recruited from the BBC, they've recruited from Al Jazeera, they've recruited from everybody. Uh, It's a big operation. And so they're... One of now many international English language news services that broadcast to audiences around the world. <laughs>
1: He didn't really answer the question, did
0: he? No, no, because some of those are members of his own association, so he didn't want to. But public diplomacy, he calls it, so putting forward a view of your country if it's being ignored. And um, you know, the the founders of it actually said, look, uh, the view of Russia comes down to three things, communism, snow and poverty, and we want to change that. But in the same year, a Guardian writer watched a week's worth of RT and ended up uh, concluding it was 24-hour Putin people.